greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Welcome back to Winds of Change. I'm your host and Bible teacher, Keith McKenzie. Uh, this is session nine in Pastor Conway Campbell's study on bibliology. Today, we're going to get into one of the high grounds I see in this study is the inerrancy of the Bible. You know, it comes down to can we trust it? Are there errors in it? What kind of contradiction and uh, discrepancies? Uh, there's a lot of people out there that point to certain things. Uh, pastor's been going through one by one with a lot of uh, historical examples, some archaeological examples. And when we really, if you want to really take the time and look at this stuff, you will see that the Bible is inerrant. So go ahead, Pastor, take us into this part of the study. God bless. Theology, and as you can see, we are in a new section dealing with the inerrancy of the Bible, section 4. Part one, and we'll be in this section for uh, nine weeks, maybe 11 weeks, um, uh, actually more than that. I think I'm on part 11, and there's still more to go. And we're going to cover several topics. You notice in the questions to ask and answer there, what do we mean by the inerrancy of the Bible? Why is it even important to believe in the biblical inerrancy? Does inerrancy of the Bible only apply to the original manuscripts? What did Jesus teach about the inerrancy of the Bible? What are the implications when inerrancy is denied? Can a person deny inerrancy of the scripture and still be a Christian? Look at what is bibliolatry and what is the Chicago statement on inerrancy? And where do various denominations stand on inerrancy historically and currently? Anybody look up bibliolatry? So it stands as homework. Did you look it up? No? Still stands as homework, right? Or you'll wait till we get to it, right? <laughs> All right. And there are many more things that we'll look at in here. You know, we'll look at um, in this section also um, uh, alleged errors in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Actually, working on that right now. Um, just finished up with the alleged errors in the Old Testament. I'm going to start this week on the alleged errors in the New Testament. We'll look at why they're alleged errors and what's the explanation. For these things so that's also in this section as well but these are some of the major questions and I'm sure you'd agree that we live in a time where people um, shrug their shoulders when confronted with error why because we live in the postmodern time you know it's it's a, a time where um, postmodernism says that nothing is truth or we can have our own truth, right? Your truth, as long as it's true for you, if it's true for something different, it's true for me, um, that's the case. Or that it even says that truth is out there, but we can't know it. And we know scripturally that that's not true. You know, and, and nowadays people have grown so accustomed to being lied to that the, the truth just seems so far-fetched. And so they would say, why wouldn't the Bible also lie to us? If other people lie to us, why wouldn't the Bible lie to us? And so the doctrine of inerrancy is an extremely important one because the truth does matter. And we know that the Bible has the truth. And so it not only does it have truth on spiritual issues, but it has truth on every realm 
of life. You know, this issue, it reflects on the character of God and it's foundational. This is inerrancy to our understanding of everything that the Bible teaches. So with that in mind, let us ask the question, the first question there, what do we mean by the inerrancy of the Bible? And we'll look at this question in a few ways. The first thing we'll look at is a definition of inerrancy. Now, the word inerrancy means freedom from error or untruths. Freedom from error or untruths. There's some synonyms to it, and um, some of them are certainty, assuredness, objective certainty, or infallibility. Um, Right there, all right? Now, we talked last section about the inspiration of the Bible. And originally, when you talked about inspiration, it automatically meant inerrancy. Years ago, when you would say inspiration would mean inerrancy. E.J. Young, in his classic work on the inspiration of the Bible, um, I think it's called um, Thy Word is Truth, but he gives a good definition of inerrancy. He says, by this word... We mean that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake and incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. And that's a good one. But then in 1974, there were a group of uh, evangelicals that met in Lausanne, Switzerland, to discuss this very issue, inerrancy. And they came to an agreement called the Lusane Covenant. And, and they said in the covenant, the Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms. Now, there were about 2,500 people from about 150 different countries um, there. And it was put together um, by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Foundation. They put together this whole meeting. And its intent was to spread the gospel. So there were certain things that they, they covenanted on. And the, and the second one was called the authority and power of the Bible. Listen to what it says. Um, did I put this in your notes, this whole paragraph? Okay. It says, we affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both Old and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written word of God without error in all that it affirms and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We also affirm the power of God's word to accomplish his purpose of salvation. The message of the Bible is addressed to all mankind, for God's revelation in Christ and in scripture is unchangeable. Through it, the Holy Spirit still speaks today. He illumines the minds of God's people in every culture to perceive its truth freshly through their own eyes and thus discloses to the whole church evermore of the many colored wisdom of God. And you see some scriptures there. Now, not very crystal clear, but, you know, here's a bunch of people sitting down and uh, and trying to come up with a definition here and or an agreement. But basically what they're trying to say in that is that the Bible is without error, right? That's pretty much what they're trying to say. And one of the statements that is often pulled out from the paragraph, um, it's the one that I have underlined in there um, for you. Do you see that there? It says that the Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms, all right? Now, as time went by, this became a very weak statement, and people started to pick it apart, um, because to some it seemed very flexible, you know, in all that it affirms. What what does that mean? And so 
you know, they would say that it would allow for errors in certain areas like creation, where, according to some, the Bible doesn't affirm historical facts. And so they would say, yes, it's inerrant in all that it affirms, but it's not in all that it says. So people are slicing and dicing things there and picking things apart. I don't know how you differentiate that. Anybody know how you differentiate that? Um, But they do. They're slicing it apart. But that was not the intent of the authors. But that's where it, it led to. So both inerrantists and errantists could ascribe to that statement. And so recognizing the weakness of that covenant, a group of evangelicals met in Chicago in 1978 for a meeting of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And what fueled this meeting now was um, that in the late 70s, a lot of historical evangelical seminaries were beginning to change. Um, They were becoming very liberal because of a low view of Scripture. And things were changing in in the landscape there. And it got really bad. For example, at the Southeastern Seminary, um... That was that was one place where this was an issue. And so when this Chicago statement was completed, the faculty were asked to sign it to say that they, they agree with this, this, this doctrine, and half of them resigned. Half of them left at Southeastern because they didn't believe it. One-third of the students left because they also didn't believe it. Listen to the statement. This is the summary statement, and I've... I think that might be in your notes too, and I've included the link there at the end of it so you could go online and see um, the whole thing. But the summary statement says, God who is himself truth and speaks truth only has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The Holy Spirit's scripture, divine author, both authenticates it as to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understanding its meaning. Being holy and and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of the world, history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if it's if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. And so they got a little bit stronger there. And in number four, they addressed this whole issue about the hist- historicity that the Bible talks about. And so it's a fantastic statement. And I I commend the whole thing to your reading. And so we had these groups looking at this whole issue of inerrancy. Thoughts, comments on, on, on this so far? All right. Now let's ask the second question. What is verbal plenary inspiration? 
and I think we've talked a little bit about this before, and this is an important term because um, it's not enough to hear someone say that they believe the Bible. What we want to hear them say is that they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, and that's the, the term that's out there now. I don't think there's another new term that's come out, but verbal plenary inspiration. So let's define it. Plenary comes from the Latin plenus, which means full. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we believe that the Bible is fully inspired and not partially inspired. It's all God's word. And so when we say that we believe that the Bible is inspired, we don't mean that it's partial inspiration. We looked at those a few weeks ago. Or even that it's progressive inspiration. We also looked at that. Um, you know, partial, again, meanings that only some things are inspired, things that lead to salvation. Um, progressive deals with the fact that the scriptures need to be understood and interpreted differently depending on what point in history you are. And so the idea with progressive is that the, the, with time, our view of scripture should change um, because God is changing it as man changes. So that's a, you know, with progressive, that's tough. But we can't compare progressive revelation to progressive um, inspiration, you know, we, we, I just, um, divine, define progressive inspiration, but how would you define progressive revelation? You want Progressive revelation means that, uh, God tells us only so much. For instance, uh, when you look at the covenants, uh, there's a certain there's a certain knowledge of what is required of that us along you know and kind of leaves a little bit more you know another example of uh progressive revelation is genesis three fifteen. if you remember from then we knew that someone was coming to crush satan's head right we knew that was going to be the case and as time went along we knew more and more about who that person was going to be um for example in isaiah we're given a description of of him um then later we learn his name then um he came and then we could learn about him directly and so there's a difference there between progressive revelation and progressive inspiration again progressive inspiration they're saying the scriptures change with time and we need to look at it differently based on the time that we're in versus god revealing things to us over different um time periods all right so when we speak of plenary inspiration we're saying that all of the Bible is inspired. But it's not enough to just say plenary because when we say that, some people will counter and they say, sure, the Bible's inspired in all its parts. But it's not inspired in all its words. And we looked at some of these views in, in, in other sessions. But so in, 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 19, in the 1980s, some evangelicals got together and decided that it's not enough to just say plenary, but verbal had to be added to it, which means the Bible is fully inspired down to its words, its very words. Verbal comes from the Latin um, verba, which means word. So I would say that I believe in a word-for-word -word inspiration 
of the Bible. And that's what the church fathers believe. That's what believers in the Middle Ages believe. That's what the Protestant reformers believe. That's what Jesus believed. And he believed that every single word is inspired by God. So this is the most important thing as it relates to the Bible, inerrancy. It's very, very important. A lot of times I'm talking to people and and there are questions asked about the Bible. And I say, well, you know, we got to always go back to whether we believe that the Bible is inerrant. And then we start from there. And so verbal plenary inspiration means a full word for word inspiration of the Bible. Now, what is not meant by biblical inerrancy? Let us see there. Um, We'll look at that in a a few ways here. Um, When we look at and we're defining inerrancy, um, it's always important to state what it means and what it does not mean. And so we could ask some questions here to try and get to that that statement there. For example, um, do the writing styles have to to match? And I guess we could reverse it and say that people who um, don't believe um, in inerrancy will say that the, the the writing styles have to match. That's their their argument. And so we can ask the question: Do the writing styles really have to match for it to be inerrant? And so the doctrine of inerrancy recognizes that God employs different writing styles. And we've talked about this, touched on it in different sections. Luke was a medical doctor, and he uses very sophisticated language, similar to any doctor today, right? Don't they use very sophisticated language? You say, well, hold on a second, break it down for me here, you know? Um, John, he uses very, very simple language. If you're reading it in the Greek, he uses something like uh, just 600 different Greek words, in the whole gospel. And when you compare them, you know, Luke and John to somebody like Paul, Paul uses the language of a philosopher. You know, he, he could hang with the, the Ravi Zacharias's of the world. You know, he, I have a, uh, a friend, he's a former pastor actually, and he teaches a seminary now, but he's getting his PhD in apologetics. And, um, you know, he has a, he has to write a lot. Um, for this PhD program, and I read a lot of his his stuff, and you know it's very good. And if you ever listen to Ravi Zacharias, you know this guy can just go around with anybody, you know. And Paul was kind of like that. But let me give you an example. Turn to Romans chapter five. <clears throat> Romans five. Look at verse 6. I love to hear Bible pages turning. It's music. All right. Verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, he shall, we shall be saved by his life. He's using reasoning that goes from the lesser to the greater here. And he says, think about it. You know, he says, We were helpless, we were ungodly, we were enemies, we were sinners, but Christ died for us. 
He says, one would hardly die for a righteous man or even a good man. But would you lay down your life for somebody who hated you? Then he says, God demonstrated his love by dying for us when we were sinners. Keep following the logic here. Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He's saying that if God can do the harder thing by saving rebels who hated him, he certainly can do the easier thing by saving us for eternity. See that there? So different variations in writing styles is totally consistent with inerrancy. It's just, you know, we, we re, and when we talked about this whole issue of dictation, we talked about that. So it's, it's totally consistent with it. What about the second one there? Does it have to be verbatim? Now, the doctrine of inerrancy recognizes that events can be recorded without a verbatim quote. Sometimes, for example, when a New Testament writer recalls an Old Testament event, a verbatim quote's not always made. They don't always do that. Because they're they're either they're translating from Hebrew to Greek, right? So they're they're doing that. So it can't be verbatim. The idea is if God was going to say it in Greek, that's how He would have said it. You know, that's the that's the idea. And so the message is the same, but it reads a little bit differently because they're working in between two languages. So inerrancy doesn't dismiss that. And some might criticize it and say that part then is not inspired because it reads a little bit different because the New Testament section didn't quote the Old Testament section exactly. Um, but again, we can't compare the two because one's in Hebrew, one's in Greek. But the idea is, again, if it was said, if God was going to say it in Greek, that's how we would have say it, said it. Now, sometimes you don't find the verbatim quote because the writer had to translate not from Hebrew to Greek, but from Aramaic to Greek, and so you won't find that that either. And there can be more than one way to express the same thought, especially when you're doing that translation. All right, so it doesn't have to be verbatim. What about parallel accounts? You know, that's something that comes up a lot. There, number three, there. Um, you know, it's it's something that gets criticized all the time: the parallel accounts and the differences in them. Um, the, you know, the doctrine of inerrancy also recognizes that parallel accounts can be complementary and not contradictory. For example, all the statements in the Gospels, those are the ones that, you know, always, um, you know, gets people, you know, when the resurrection or different things like that. And, um, but, but all the statements in the Gospel describe events just as they happen, although they vary in some detail. You know, one writer may use uh, slightly different words to describe the same incident, but both give the same meaning. But critics will use that and argue and say that because of that, there are mistakes in the Bible. But what, what we have to keep in mind is that the different words, even though they may be used, um, it's because the writer's looking at it from a different standpoint. Um, I was uh, at, a, at a football game yesterday evening. And um, the two teams were kind of getting a little antsy. And the coaches were kind of holding them back. This is a halftime. And I'm looking at the situation. I'm observing it. And one of my staff members came over. And he, he, was, he was, you know, 20 feet away. And he saw something I didn't see. And I'm looking at perfect situation. He heard things that I didn't see. And, and, and a lot of times it's a perspective issue. 
And we see that sometimes, and it completes the picture when you kind of put it together. When we shared our accounts, I said, ah, yeah, I saw that, and, you know, and, and, and he, could, he could add to that, for example. A Jew may see things different than a Gentile would through different lenses. But when you carefully look at the, the accounts and you carefully examine it, they're very complementary. Turn to Matthew 8. Flip back to Matthew 8. And when you're in Matthew 8, hold your finger there and turn to Luke chapter 7. So Matthew 8 and Luke chapter 7. Matthew 8 verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I, say to, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, again, hold your finger here and turn to Luke 7, all right? Verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum and uh, and a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. And you see the rest of the account there. But in Matthew 8, it said, um, in verse 8, um, it said, the centurion said, in verse 8, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But in the parallel account in Luke chapter 7, we learn that the centurion sent who? Jewish elders, right? And in verse 4, he says, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. Then in verse 6 of Luke 7, we see now Jesus started on his way with him. And when he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. And so it was his friends in the Luke account and not him as in Matthew. So, how are these passages then complementary? It's complementary when we merge them together. And, and when we get to the alleged um, uh, errors in the Old Testament and New Testament, we'll look at some of these passages, specifically in Numbers, in, in Chronicles, and Samuel, and Kings. That's where we'll camp out a lot. There's a lot of them in there. Um, so we'll camp out there a little bit. But, for example, you know, when you merge them together, he may have first sent Jewish elders to see Jesus because he doubted that he would have taken the word of a centurion. Why? Because centurions were what? Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. And they were viewed by Jews as pagans and scum. 
And so Jesus, being a Jew, might not want to listen to a Gentile centurion. And so he got the elders to go. And so when Matthew presents this account, it's as if the centurion were, were present himself. And so he's reflecting what the centurion meant while Luke was emphasizing those who went for him. And this is typical of the Gospels, and we see this throughout. We learn so much more when we read them together um, and, and, and try and get the, the full perspective. It's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, watching it in 3D, you know. Um, there was a movie that came out in the, in the 90s or early 2000s called Vantage Point, and um, it talked about the president being killed. And the whole movie was just going from, you know, 10 different eyewitness accounts, and you saw so many different things. Um, and that's the that's the idea here. When you look at the parallel accounts, you could see it from different vantage points. Number four there, does the grammar have to be the same? All right. Does the grammar have to be the same? Now, the doctrine of inerrancy recognizes that the grammatical rules of ancient Hebrew and Koine Greek differ from our standard forms. All right. Um, because English rules of grammar do not match the rules of biblical grammar. This doesn't mean that the Bible is in error, though. In English, it's not proper to mix metaphors. Is that correct, Monica? Um, but in Greek, for example, it's totally fine to mix metaphors. Remember in John chapter 10, Jesus says what? I am the door. And then in that same passage, he says, I am the good shepherd, right? The same, same passage in, in John chapter 10. That is how the rules of grammar work for Greek. Even in English, the rules of grammar change. And I had this argument with Monica a couple weeks ago about this whole use of and. You know, when I was a kid, at least how I remember it, I didn't pay attention too much, but you didn't have to put the comma before and. But that's how I remember it. But Monica says you always had to put the comma before and. I remember it as you didn't have to. But now you do, you know, as the way I'm seeing it. And so things change. And so we can't compare the two. We can't look at English and say this is the rules of grammar and then compare it to, to Greek. But that doesn't mean that there are errors. What about problem passages? Again, the doctrine of inerrancy recognizes that there are still problem passages that we can't explain. There's, there's a few of them. Um, and, and what some people will call them is they'll call them discrepancies. But most of the time, what these so-called discrepancies are, they can be explained when you carefully research them, when you carefully look at them. And again, we'll look at a number of them starting in part seven of this section. But even the ones that we can't explain, it doesn't mean that they're not true. And we've looked at some of them already, that there were certain things that weren't explainable. And for example, about the Hittites. And people says there's no such people as the Hittites. And for a long time, nobody could explain it until archaeology caught up. And we're not waiting for archaeology to catch up, but it kind of proves to the rest of the world that it is true. And um, as we've seen, some things that were problem passages were cleared up. And you know what? There may be some things that we'll never know um, or never have cleared up this side of the sod, right? You know, and so... Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the Bible is inspired and entirely without error. Next time, we're going to continue on this issue of inerrancy where we left off. And um, 
we're going to talk, start talking about why it's important to believe in biblical inerrancy and, um, and then go from there um, uh, with, um, with, you know, talking about what Jesus taught about inerrancy and, and so forth. Any thoughts or, or questions on this, this part? Rick? Um, my notebook um, will have next week's lesson, but it doesn't have anything beyond. Oh, that's the last one? Oh, all right. So I got, I got to get caught up with you then. Um, all right. Um, so I'll um, – actually, we won't meet next week. Um, after the anniversaries, we won't meet, um, but we'll meet the next week. Okay. All right. Really? What does it say? Section what? Okay, yes. Yeah, so after next week, there's none, right? That's the last section you have in there? Section 4, part 2 is after the uh, yeah. copy of the Chicago State. Okay. All right. And that's it? Okay. All right. Good. Um, I had I'd wanted to give 10 weeks at a time, and so we're coming up on our 10th week, and I'm working on the eighth week <laughs> of the next section that I want to give you. So by the time I, we come together the next time, I'll have a stack of the next 10 weeks for, for everybody. Good. Thanks for that reminder because I thought we had some. And then we have midterms. It'll be right before we give it out, we'll have midterms. See? Thank George for the midterms because uh, now I'll come up with a midterm. You could thank him for them. All right. Good. So that, that, that we're, uh, we're one-fourth. We'll be one-fourth through the, this, uh, this study, if you will. Anything else? Any thoughts, comments, or questions? All right, thanks for hanging in there. It's a, it's like a, you know, sculpture, you know, kind of the marble, kind of chipping away at it. And um, by the time we're done, um, we should um, have um, this is like a doctorate course, doctoral course. We should be there. So, good. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to be even firm, more firm in 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 the fact that this book, the one, you, only one you inspired is inerrant. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration, fully inspired down to every single word. Help us to be able to defend that. And each week as we, we look at this, Lord, that you would cement what we've learned in our hearts so that we'd be able to uh, be able to uh, defend it and contend for the faith whenever we come upon it. So we thank you, praise you. Give us a chance to be a light this week to someone we come in contact with. In Christ's name, amen. Hope you enjoyed that part of the uh, study on bibliology, on the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, can we trust our Bible, and is it reliable, ultimately? Because if it's not reliable, then why does it really matter? Anyway, God bless you. Next time, session 10. And if you haven't found us on Facebook yet, find us on Facebook, friend us on Facebook. Uh, we've set up some discussion forums and the types of things like that so you can communicate back and forth. And uh, if you like these series, and we have multiple series on multiple topics uh, coming up, subscribe to those in iTunes. Stay up to date. Uh, pray for this ministry. And uh, until next time, may God richly bless you. Amen.